Lord, we worship you today as the God who is enough, the God who is strong to save, a God who pours out his grace upon needy sinners. Lord, we all come today from a different place, some weary, some wounded, some struggling, wandering. And Lord, we come before you because we need you desperately, Lord. We need you to fill our life with hope and joy and love. God, we want to meet you here in this place. We, we long to hear from you. Lord, we believe that you are the teacher here. That as your word speaks, that it speaks words of life. And so, God, we humbly submit our hearts to you and ask that you would mold us, shape us, make us into whoever you want us to be. God, give a sense of your glory and greatness to rise in our hearts, that we would feel your wonder, to feel your awe, and to leave here today knowing what it means to experience you, to experience the living God. Lord, we love you. We just declare collectively that you are our delight. You are our joy. You are our life. And we ask you to, to lead us, continue to lead us in worship now through your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seat, I want to invite you to take your Bible and open it to Ezra chapter 7. You've already heard um, Ezra chapter 7, 11 to 28 read, and we'll, we'll spend most of our time there. So uh, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to, uh, to go ahead and turn there. Uh, there's a famous poem that I'm sure most of you heard before. Uh, you may not recognize all the lines of the poem, but I would bet that you recognize the last two lines of the poem at least. So I'm going to read a few stanzas, and I, I, want, to, I want you to hear if maybe you can uh, sense that you've heard these two lines before. This was a poem written in 1875 by William Ernest Henley, uh, and its title is Invictus, which means unconquered. Uh, this is how the last three stanzas of the poem goes. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, I admit this is uh, stirring poetry. I think there's something about this poem that resonates with us because we like the idea of living an unconquered life. We like the idea of living an undaunted life. But really, underneath this poem is a really scary way to view life. Uh, underneath this poem is a terrifying perspective of life. The question that we are left with at the end of this poem is, can we 
really bear the weight of being our own God. And that's why I think this poem is almost uh, directly opposite to what we see in Psalm 23 when David wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, One way of approaching life puts our future in our hands. The other way of approaching life puts our future in God's hands. Uh, One way of approaching life uh, puts our ability to survive and thrive in the world in our hands. The other entrusts our ability to thrive and survive in the world into God's hands. One puts the care of our souls in our hands, and the other puts the care of our souls in God's hands. Uh, We live in a time when we have to make a big decision. Every generation has to make this big decision. Will we live as if God does not exist, or will we embrace the fact that He does? Will we think that we have to take control, or will we trust in His sovereign control? Will the banner that hangs over our lives be, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul? Or will the banner that hangs over our lives be, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, In Ezra chapter 7, God comes to us in his word and he entices us to fall on our, our faces before the Lord of history to see and acknowledge God's greatness, his sovereignty, his lordship, And then as we move through the passage, we begin to see that the same God of all strength and all power and all dominion is also the same God who loves us. The same God who looks after and cares for even the smallest details of our lives. That the sovereign king is also the father who is the shepherd of our souls. So there's two things that we need to learn to do if we're going to trust God as God. Two things that we're going to need to learn to do. Um, don't get your hopes up. There are five subpoints to point number one, so this is not actually a two-point sermon. Um, but the first thing we need to learn to do is to love the sovereignty of God, to learn to love the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty means that He is executing His authority at all times, and in all places, and over all the details of life. Uh, Proverbs 16 communicates God's sovereignty with with sort of an illustration. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Uh, I don't know when the last time you maybe played a board game or did something where you tossed some dice or you, you, you seem to maybe, maybe some of you in here have gambled recently. I, you know, we don't have to, you know, talk about it. To see here that what what the Bible is telling us is that all of those decisions, all the ways that all of life unfolds is in the hand of the Lord. And then I love how the Bible communicates God's sovereignty in Romans chapter 11 using different prepositions. Uh, These prepositions create an all-inclusive picture of life under God's sovereignty. When Paul says in Romans 11.36, for from him... And through him and to him 
are all things. For from Him are all things, and through Him are all things, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. So the beginning, the middle, and the end of all things is under the active exercise of God's authority. Um, Ezra, who we are reading about today in Ezra chapter 7, we learned about him last week for the first time. In the first 10 verses of Ezra chapter 7, God brought Ezra up out of captivity in in Babylon. He brought him from Babylon, brought him to Jerusalem, and Ezra could have just moved on with the story. right? He told us that God brought him up, and he could have just moved on into chapter 8 and continued in the story. But instead, Ezra takes the chance to sort of double-click on what had happened. He wants to zoom in on how exactly it was that God brought him up out of slavery so that we will be able to marvel along with him at just how utterly sovereign our God is. And so here's five reasons that you and I should learn to love the sovereignty of God. Five reasons that you and I should learn to love the sovereignty of God. The first is this, that God's sovereignty establishes his supremacy. God's sovereignty establishes his supremacy. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 again. It says, This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. So here's the great irony of this passage. This king, Artaxerxes, self-proclaims to be the king of kings. And yet what we're going to see is that he was just a pawn in the hand of the Lord. Uh, This Artaxerxes, he thought he had gotten to the top of life. He thought that there was nobody who could tell him what to do. He thought he was at the very tippy top of the chain. And yet this is what it says in verse 27. This is how Ezra explains what happened. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Artaxerxes thought he was in charge, but his life was under the authority of the true king of kings. Artaxerxes thought that he was the master of his own fate, and yet he was here being used by God to carry out God's purposes. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of jobs you've had over the years. I've had a, a number of different kinds of jobs. Uh, and a couple, at a couple of my jobs, I've been in a situation that was sort of like this. Maybe you have somebody that you work with who's uh, technically a senior to you, not because you have a different job, but because maybe they've been there longer than you have. And then you got your manager. You know, your manager's the person that, that kind of makes your schedule and tells you what to do, and you have to report to them. And then maybe even that person has a boss or somebody who's, who's over them. But then the person who's really in charge is the owner of the company. Now you go into work and you come out every day and you, yeah, you follow your manager's orders. You, you, you go along with what your manager says. But on the day that the owner shows up at the store, everything is different. You tuck in your shirt. You speak to customers a little bit differently. Everybody, including your manager, is on their best behavior. Why? Because even a manager is just somebody who's carrying out orders. But the owner has inherent authority. The owner has control over all the details. The owner is allowed to do whatever he wants to do because he is supreme 
in that organization. Now, that little illustration is only a small inkling for our understanding of how much more supreme God is than every other authority on the earth. Uh, We see here in another verse in Proverbs how God's sovereignty establishes his supremacy. This is Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The heart of Artaxerxes was like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord being used for God's purposes, God's sovereignty over the person who claimed to be the king of kings demonstrated that there is only one true king of kings, and that is the sovereign Lord of history. So here's one thing that this means for you and me. It means that the invitation to prayer is an invitation to have the ear of the king of kings of the universe. The invitation for you and I to talk to God is the invitation to actually go to the person who really is at the very tippy top, who really does execute authority on the earth for his good purposes. That, if you think about that, that poem in Psalm 23, uh, one of the ways that I tend to operate like I am the master of my own fate is by not praying to the Lord. But one of the most refreshing ways that I embrace the Lord as my shepherd is by living a life of prayer where I'm regularly going to the King of Kings. And every time I pray to him, I am declaring both to myself and to the world around me that I believe that he is Lord, that I believe that he is the true King of Kings. So God's sovereignty establishes his supremacy. A second thing is that God's sovereignty displays his wisdom. God's sovereignty displays his wisdom. Uh, The sovereignty of God puts the wisdom of God on display because God is weaving together millions and millions of desires and decisions and events all at the same time. I mean, think about it. God is reigning over billions of people's lives, trillions of dust particles, all the technology that's ever been invented, all the weather patterns that are going on in nature. And he's weaving it all together for his good purposes and according to his plan. How outstanding. Uh, Notice how from Artaxerxes' perspective, this is King Artaxerxes, this guy doesn't love or believe in God, Um, he's just sort of doing everyday normal things. He's just living his life, making decrees, trying to solve problems in his kingdom, and he just thinks he's living a normal life. But from Ezra's perspective, Ezra, who sees, sees life from God's perspective, he sees that God is at work in, through, and around all the things that are happening in Artaxerxes' life to bring about God's good purposes. So what does God's sovereignty feel like? What does it look like? Well, it looks a lot like normal everyday life. God's sovereignty looks like a letter from a king in verse 11. Uh, It looks like a guy in verse 12 who decides that he wants to set his heart to study the Bible. Uh, It looks like a series of decrees which cause governments to move and act in certain specific ways. Um, I love how in verse 23 we see how uh, God's sovereignty looked like the emotion of fear 
I want to read verse 23 for you. Again, remember, God put this into the heart of the king. Well, you're thinking, well, how did he do that? Well, here's at least one little, little uh, detail that we get of how God was moving in the heart of Artaxerxes. It says, whatever is decreed, this is Artaxerxes speaking here. It says, whatever is decreed by the hand of the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. One of the things that got Artaxerxes moving was that he was afraid of God. And God's sovereignty looks like, for example, God establishing the concept of government in the first place. Romans 13 tells us that God is the one who invented the idea of government and put it into practice in the world so that when we see things like verse 26 where it says, Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for consification of goods or for imprisonment. We know that God had already set up a system where a government could even do some good thing for God, even if they were doing it for the wrong reasons. Ezra is meticulously recording these details for us so that we can marvel at how God weaves together billions and billions of things all at the same time, knowing both the past, the present, and the future, and that we'll see His sovereign wisdom at work in all the details of life. Uh, This past year, uh, David Neese, who is our Baptist Collegiate Ministries um, representative uh, minister for Horry County, uh, he did a demonstration of a Rubik's Cube. Um, Now, if you're here and you do not know what a Rubik's Cube is, I am sorry that you live under a rock. Uh, A Rubik's Cube is a cube that has a bunch of different colors on it. And the idea is you're supposed to twist it and turn it so that at the end, all the sides would show the same color. And and so it's this this thing you're supposed to do. Well, David led us through this um, demonstration where he was teaching us how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And it was pretty cool. You would, you would do a few steps, and you would think, oh, man, like we're making progress. I can kind of see where this is going. But then he would tell us to do a couple more steps, and it would literally seem like you were completely undoing everything you had just done. And then he would lead you through a couple, through a couple more steps. And then now all of a sudden you would start to think, oh, man, here it is. Here, we're getting close now. And then he would lead you through a few steps, and you would think, now, why is he telling me to undo everything I just did? Now, if you ever watch someone actually solve a Rubik's Cube, the whole time you're thinking they are just randomly twisting this thing. They, there's no way they have any idea what they're doing. It just seems like all the way up to the end, this is not going to come together. This is not going to work. And then all of a sudden, the last click comes into play, and it's done. And all you can think is, how did they do that? Now, imagine that the the God of the universe is weaving together billions and billions of things all at the same time. Isn't it possible that there might be a moment where it appears to us like things have gotten out of order? Isn't it possible that there might be a moment where it appears that we've maybe taken a wrong step? But then all of a sudden when it comes together under the sovereign hand of God, we think, wow, how does God do this? Right? I have a hard time managing my few daily tasks throughout the day. How does God bring together 
everything that's happening in the world and bring it about for His good ends. Why would I want to be the master of my fate when this all-wise God is inviting me to have Him as the shepherd of my soul? Why would I want to try to take control again when this all-wise God who is big enough and strong enough and wise enough to piece it all together is inviting me to trust Him with my life rather than to try to take matters into my own hands? We need to learn to love the sovereignty of God because His sovereignty displays His wisdom. Here's what this means for you and me. What this means is that you and I can confidently obey God and then trust Him with the results. Uh, we actually don't need to know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, we actually don't need to know what's going to happen next year. We actually don't have to have all the answers. What it means to trust an all-wise God is to seek His wisdom in the areas that we do have responsibility for, and then to trust His sovereign wisdom with everything else. So as you're moving through life and you're making decisions, you seek God's wisdom and you obey God's wisdom for those things that you do have control over. And the things that are out of our hands, the things that you don't, you humbly, lovingly trust the all-wise God with our lives. That's what it means to embrace the Lord as our shepherd rather than to live like we are the masters of our own fate. Um, a, a third thing, the sovereignty of God delivers God's promises. The sovereignty of God delivers God's promises. A few weeks ago, uh, we took a little break and we jumped into the book of Haggai for one week. We did a, an overview of the book of Haggai because Haggai uh, was a prophet that God used during the book of Ezra to, to propel the people to get back to work again on the building of the temple. And one of the ways that God propelled his people was through promises. And this is one of the promises that God made to his people in Haggai 2, verses 7 and 8. God says this, And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So Ezra's wanting to see as he goes back and he double clicks and he zooms in to how God brought him up out of Babylon and brought him to Jerusalem. He wants us to see how, because of God's sovereignty, God has fulfilled his promise. Uh, and so I want you to, to listen as we read verses 14 to 20. Listen to how many times you hear the words silver and gold. The same silver and gold that Haggai promised would be brought to Jerusalem. Hear how God fulfills this promise. It says, For you are sent by the king of, uh, by the king, this is Artaxerxes speaking, and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for, for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem, 
With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given uh, you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls you to provide, you may do it out of the king's treasury. Promise made and promise delivered. How? The sovereign hand of God. If God promises that he is going to bring the treasures of the nations into his house, if God reminds us that all the silver is his and all the gold is his and that he's planning to bring that silver and gold into his house, then we can know that he is going to do it. His promises are 100% guaranteed. If God's sovereignty delivers his promises, then we can trust that not one thing that he's ever said will somehow squeak out not one thing that he has ever told us that will come true would ever somehow not happen. Uh, that when God gives us his promises, they don't come with question marks. And so we can trust uh, him in all things. So here's a thought. Uh, when you're in the midst of trouble, is the, is the first thought in your, your mind to cling to the promises of God? Um, when you find yourself uh, maybe struggling or life seems to be confusing, maybe you're in one of those moments like with the Rubik's Cube where it just feels like things aren't quite fitting together, does your heart rest in what God has said will happen? Uh, and what about with other people? You know, when people share with you what they're going through and how they're struggling, does it occur to you to remind them of all that God has promised? Does it occur to you that you can encourage them maybe most teaching them not to trust that they are the master of their fate, but instead to embrace the shepherd of their soul by clinging to what God has said will happen, to what God has said is true, to remind them that God has promised that he will never leave us and never forsake us. The sovereignty of God, his authority, is what guarantees and delivers all his promises. Uh, a fourth thing about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God demonstrates God's love. The sovereignty of God demonstrates God's love. I want to read verses 27 and 28. We're going to spend most of the rest of our time in these, these two verses because there's just a lot here that's worth meditating on. Uh, it says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And here's the part I want to key in on for a second. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. The sovereign execution of God's plan is an exhibition of his love. God puts all of his divine power and he wraps it in his divine love that when God acts, when God moves, he's doing it to show us his benevolence, to show us his goodness to show us how kind he is to us. 
Um, just go back for a second and think about the wisdom of God and his sovereignty. Think about the billions and billions of things that God is working together and how he's bringing it all together, how he holds everything together, how he sustains all things. And then, and then hear that God makes this promise to his people that he is working those billions and billions and billions of things together for your good. That demonstrates God's love for you. Uh, I think back to a time in my life when my wife Allie and I were just dating. Um, you know, even now that, now that we're married, obviously I still want to demonstrate my love to her. But it's a little different when you're dating somebody. Uh, when you're dating somebody, you're, you're demonstrating your love to them because they're not quite sure yet how much you really love them. And so it, it kind of feels like everything you do, every decision you make, every conversation you, you have, it's communicating something about whether or not you really love that person, whether or not they can really trust that, that you're going to serve them, whether or not they can trust that you'll provide for them and care for them. Uh, it makes me think of this phrase that maybe you've heard, uh, maybe you've said it, maybe you've heard it said, uh, but it, it's this phrase, I would move heaven and earth for you. What does somebody mean when they say that? I would move heaven and earth for you. That's really sappy stuff right there. What they're trying to say is, if I had all the power in the world and I could show you, if I could demonstrate to you how much I love you, I would do something miraculous for you because that's how much I love you. And what Ezra is saying to the Lord here is he's saying, God, you have moved heaven and earth for me. You have done something that only you can do. And yes, God, it, it reveals your power and supremacy. Yes, it reveals your wisdom. Yes, God, this shows me that you keep your promises. But even down underneath that, Lord, this shows me that you love me. And what we have to understand is that all of God's choices, all of his free choices come to us packaged in love. Consider for a second that God freely chose to create the world. He didn't have to do that. That he freely chose to create the world. That demonstrates his love. Uh, consider right now, even now, God is upholding the universe moment by moment. That demonstrates his love. Uh, consider that every single one of us Whoever lived, have turned away from God, have rebelled against Him, and yet He has promised to send us a Savior in His Son, Jesus. Freely. He did not have to do that. That demonstrates His love. And consider that God shows us in His Word that He was sovereign over even the most minutest details of the execution of his own son to save sinners. Uh, the apostles were men who had spent time with Jesus, who walked with Jesus, and then they had been commissioned to carry out the mission of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, this was their prayer. I love the prayer starts out. They actually call God sovereign Lord. That's how they address him in this prayer. But then later in the prayer, they pray this. For truly, in this city, 
They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What did these people do that God planned? They mocked Jesus. They spit on and slapped Jesus. They falsely accused Jesus. And then eventually they executed Jesus. And it was all under the sovereign hand of God. And this demonstrates His love more than anything else could. That when God goes to move heaven and earth for us, He does it at the cost of His own Son. Ezra knew that what was happening to him was the hand of God, and so he rejoiced that in this sovereign act, God had extended to me his steadfast love. Now, certainly it's easier for us to see God's love in his plan and in his sovereignty when it seems to work out in our favor, right? But remember the promise? Remember the promise from God? That for those who belong to Him, those who are His, He works all things together for our good. So maybe you're wondering today, how do I know if God loves me? I look around at my life, I look around at what, what's happening, how can I know, how can I know that this God loves me? Well, the place you start is at the cross. It's like when a big, if a big boulder were to hit a pond and, and then the ripple effects move out from there, that cataclysmic smash is the love of God revealed in the death of His Son for sinners. And we see there how God sovereignly took the worst possible thing and made it the best possible thing. And so then out from there, as it ripples out into our lives, we can begin to understand how the worst things in our lives God could actually be using for good. That one day when you and I get to heaven and we rewatch our life, we will see that there was not one thing that came to us from the hand of God that was not packaged in love. And so if you're here today and you, you don't have a relationship with God, you've been trying to live as the master of your own fate, the captain of your own soul. Oh, how I pray your heart would be melted by the love of God, the love of God that sovereignly sent his son to die for sinners, and that you would want to worship that God, that you would want to place your faith in that Savior because you see how wonderful the love of God is. And then if you are here today and you are a Christian, what this means is that we should be the most thankful people on the planet. When I am the master of my own fate, I will have lots to gripe and complain about. But when I am trusting the Lord as my shepherd, 
I will begin to see all of life as an opportunity to give thanks. That everything that I receive outside of hell is a precious gift of love. And then a fifth reason we need to learn to love the sovereignty of God. Even underneath His love, His love is amazing. His love is wonderful. It is just a precious token that we receive. But even underneath it, uh, fifth, the sovereignty of God magnifies God's glory. It magnifies God's glory. Verse 27 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So it's both what God was doing and both how God was doing it was showing off his glory. So what was God doing? God was bringing money, treasures, gold and silver from nations who didn't even believe in him into his house to make his house look awesome. Right? We, we like to care about our homes because our homes say something about who we are. And God was bringing the treasures of the nations into his home so that people could see his glory and see his beauty. But it is how God was doing it that really shows us his glory. Right? In a way, it's as if God was flexing in this moment. But I don't know about you, but when someone wins a victory, when, when someone uh, seems to conquer someone else, and they do it without the other person even knowing how, that makes it even more marvelous and more amazing that God would be flexing, but doing it in such a stealth-like way that Artaxerxes thinks it's just a normal Monday, and he's carrying out the sovereign plan of God. The sovereignty of God magnifies his glory. My whole life, I'd seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. Um, the Grand Canyon is pretty sweet. If you've seen pictures of it, it you know, it's beautiful. Uh, but then I went to the Grand Canyon, and I'm not going to lie, I honestly wonder why people even take pictures of it. Because when you are standing there and you're looking at it, you realize that those pictures can't even begin to grasp what you're looking at. And when we talk about the fact that God's glory is magnified, we're not saying that God's glory gets any bigger. What we're saying is that His sovereign greatness gets bigger to us. That it's like we go from seeing Him on a postcard to actually feeling the weight of His a magnificence and his sovereignty that maybe looking at a postcard, you might say, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. But when you're standing there, you lose your breath. You whisper because you feel the humility. You feel this big. And that's what happens when the sovereignty of God sets in and you feel God's greatness and bigness your heart is moved to worship, which is where we are led in our second point today. Uh, don't worry, there are not five subpoints. There are only three. 
Someone's going to come up to me and say, you shouldn't say that in your sermon. But I don't know. I'm trying to be myself today. Um, so we learn, learn to love the sovereignty of God. And then secondly, we learn to respond to the sovereignty of God. Um, I love how Ezra gives us this snapshot of how God's sovereignty works out in the world. But then we also get to see a firsthand account of how Ezra responds and how you and I ought to respond as well. Uh, three things just sort of jump right out of the text. And the first is worship. As Ezra gets done recounting this letter, recounting of how God had fulfilled his promise, recounting of how God had showed his love, recounting of how God has weaved together millions and millions and millions of things to show off his wisdom, the first thing out of his mouth is, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. Ezra loved the sovereignty of God because when he saw God for who he really was, God's greatness swelled in his heart, and all he wanted to do was praise and worship this great, big, awesome God. Now, listen, I know we all worship a little bit differently. We all express our praise a little bit differently. Uh, this passage is not inviting you or me to somehow become different people or, or act like someone that we're not. But what this passage is doing is it's saying, however you express awe and wonder, that is how we should respond under the wonder of the sovereignty of God. So if you're a person that loves to sing, then the sovereignty of God should make you sing. Uh, if you're a person who loves to, to shout and clap, then the sovereignty of God should make you want to shout and clap. If you're the kind of person that takes your hands out of your pocket when you see something cool, the sovereignty of God should make you want to take your hands out of your pocket. However you express all, however God has designed you and your personality to express reverent praise and worship, that is the appropriate response when God brings us to the edge of his greatness and we actually see how wonderful and powerful he is. And then the second thing that jumps right out of the text to me is courage. Right? Ezra worships, but, he, but it also tells us that he was filled with courage. He literally says at, at the end of it in verse 28, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Ezra was emotionally fortified. He was strengthened. He was propelled with a new energy because he saw the sovereignty of God. Uh, life is full of fears. You and I live our lives with lots and lots and lots of reasons to be afraid. But I love what Paul Tripp says uh, in a book uh, about the sovereignty of God. He says that things out of your control are not out of control because of God's ordained plans for all things and his active rule over all things. Who of us doesn't need to wake up every morning and remind ourselves of that? Things out of my control are not out of control. Uh, I want to read another quote to you, but I think it would be more powerful if you know who said it, if you know a little bit about the person who said it. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary to Ecuador in the mid to late 1900s. Um, she was a woman who not only faced fears, but lived through what some of us would probably um, say would be uh, one of our deepest fears. In 1956, her husband Jim and four other missionaries were speared to death 
by the very people that they were trying to reach with the gospel. Um, This is not just coming close to your fears. This is not just being faced with danger. This is experiencing what most of us would say is, is our worst dreams coming true. And yet, two years later, Elizabeth Elliot brought her daughter and a sister of one of the other men that was killed, and they moved back to Ecuador and sought to reach the same people again. And then two years after that, the majority of that tribe placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, how does a woman do that? How does she experience what she experienced and then have the courage to go back? Well, I love this simple but profound quote. She's written a lot of books, and I would encourage you to to look into her, Elizabeth Elliot. But this simple, profound quote, she said, Fear arises when we imagine that everything depends on us. See, the reason that Elizabeth Elliot could live with courage is because she knew that the Lord was her shepherd. She knew that the Lord was the shepherd of her husband, Jim. She trusted the sovereign king of kings. And her heart was filled with courage to go and be willing to lay down her life And God used her in a powerful way. Um, If fear arises when we think things depend on us, then courage arises as we learn to depend fully on the Almighty God. And then a third and final thing that that just jumps out of this passage from Ezra to us. Yes, he's led to worship. Yes, he's filled with courage. But he also takes action. Love how the, the end of verse 28 tells us, I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. What propelled Ezra to do something was his faith in a sovereign God. So far from keeping us from acting, God's sovereignty is what frees us to act. I mean, think about how life works. You and I are more willing to do something if we believe that we're certain in it. We are more willing to act and take risks when we feel more confident in those risks. If you knew for a fact that an investment opportunity was going to bring a good return, you would be more likely to wage your money or your investment because you knew you had a certainty that it would return. And what we see in Ezra here is that when he sees the sovereignty of God, when when he sees how certain his life is under the watch care of God, he's now free to act. He's now free to move because life doesn't depend on him anymore. He's no longer the master of his own fate. He's no longer the captain of his own soul. He's able to embrace the Lord as his shepherd and trust that when he takes the risk that he has God on his side. So Ezra brings us, in a sense, to the edge of the Grand Canyon. He's trying to show us how our God reigns and rules. 
Um, he's showing us a vivid picture of Proverbs 21.1 to remind you again that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's like you and I. I mean, we might go home this afternoon and pick up a gardening hose and, and water, water your plants. I mean, that is what Ezra sees at the heart of Artaxerxes. This is if God can just pick it up and just move it wherever he wants. This sovereign, great God. And so we're left with this, that daunting question again. Can we bear the weight of being our own God? Will we try to live that terrifying reality that I am the master of my fate? Or will we live the life of faith where we trust the shepherd of our souls? Remember, it, it, it comes down to simple things like a life of, living a life of prayer where we actually turn to the Lord instead of seeking our own answers. It looks like seeking his wisdom in our responsibilities and then trusting him with everything else that we don't have responsibility for. It looks like clinging to his promises in the midst of those crazy situations and believing that if he said it was going to happen, it'll happen. And it looks like courageous action where on the basis of a rock-solid confidence, we're able to move and act and take risks for the Lord so that we are fortified in him, trusting that he's got us. Trusting that there's nothing that's going to squirm outside of his great, large, loving hand. So the sovereign king who reigns is also the, the loving father who is the shepherd of our souls. Let's pray together. Lord, we all need a greater glimpse of who you are. We all need to operate less in our fears, less in our strength, less in our wisdom, and more under your loving, kind hand. And so, God, I pray you would draw us in faith, draw us to trust you. Lord, draw us to love your sovereignty, to love that you do as you please. And Lord, that you've shown us time and time and time again that what you please is to love us. Help us to rest. Help us to rest in your security and then to act, Lord, out of your security. We need your help and your grace today to know you as our good shepherd. It's in Jesus' name that we continue to worship now.